0: Ladies and gentlemen, in order to achieve an R rating today, a motion picture must contain full frontal nudity, graphic violence, or an explicit
1: reference to the sex act. Since this film has none of those, and since research has proven that R-rated films are by far the most popular with the movie-going public,
0: the producers of this motion picture have asked me to take this opportunity to
1: say, fuck you.
2: Radio Drone. It's a Thursday night, masquerading as another night, because this airs on a Thursday night, but we're not recording it on a Thursday night, but that doesn't matter. I'm Josh Hadley, and you're listening to Radio Drone. With me, as always, is the king of the robot porn himself, Cecil.
0: I'm so confused.
2: Good, then you're right right alongside the audience (laughs) at this point. (laughs) Peter will not be joining us tonight. Peter is off viewing a 35mm screening of Bad Taste, so I think he probably made the right choice. But filling in for him is someone that fans have actually been asking for for a while. They like Fred Fritz, for some reason I've yet to fathom.
3: Yeah, no accounting for taste. Is it too late to go with Pitar to the Bad Taste showing? Pitar? That's how I say it. All
1: right. That's how he
3: told me he was pronounced. I don't know, maybe he was lying.
0: No, I think it's really, I, I think that's the thing. It really is Pizar, but Josh just insists on saying it wrong. Okay.
2: Hey, I haven't pronounced your name right once yet. No. Cecil Trachtenberg. Uh,
0: you're so wrong.
2: Before we get into the show, 1981 tonight, you guys need to go to adamandeve.com. Use the promo code DROME, and you will get ten free gifts on top of whatever you order. You will get six free DVDs, a free mystery gift, a gift for him, a gift for her and free US shipping. Just use the promo code DROME at adamandeve.com. When 1981 began for film, we were kind of feeling the after effects of the 80s beginning. As, you know, we discussed last week, the first couple of years of any any decade when it comes to film is still kind of the previous decade, you know. A lot of the films in 1980 were still feeling 70s. Now we're starting to see movies that start to feel like the 80s when you think of 1981 what film or films immediately
0: jump out at you escape from new york raiders of the lost ark and the evil dead amazing oh and and um stripes too stripes one of the first r-rated comedies that uh, i was able to see and uh it stayed with me over the years but uh just some amazing just a variety of content uh, i mean so many unique cool fun all over the place movies it was just a great year
3: well uh there's there's a couple for me there for for different reasons uh in the theater there was definitely raiders of the lost ark because growing up, I was a huge fan of, like, Mysterious Island, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, Journey to the Center of the Earth. So Raiders was keeping in line with that. And then I was also a huge James Bond fan, so for your eyes only was the movie that, well, actually, that's the movie that made me a James Bond fan. But then, I didn't see this till later, but it's from 1981, would become a movie that had a huge impact on me, which was Escape from New York. I've, I've got to go with
2: two films that I caught on cable, because both of them were quite rare on video. And I'm, I'm only six years old at this point, so I was not seeing these in the theater. And that would be Galaxy of Terror and Heavy Metal. Those were both... HBO and Cinemax staples, and I grew up watching those long before I should have been able to watch a movie like Heavy Metal or Galaxy of Terror. So for me, 1981 was Heavy Metal's year. As we're coming into this, the whole blockbuster formula is now completely established. You know, Hollywood has got the blockbuster formula. You've got the slasher movies. Really starting to pick up. I mean, there was some in 1980. There was almost three times as many in 1981. And not just the slasher films. You had so many, because drive-ins were still around and video is still really in its infancy. You had movies that you would call drive-in movies. You have all these kind of mid-ground. You have, like, the movies that Avco Embassy was making, such as Escape from New York. Not big enough to be a big theatrical movie, but not small enough to be an indie film, it was a drive-in movie. That was the, you had the modern era of the drive-in. And you, you had great exploitation films. You even had the Italian exploitation stuff coming in. You had two Lucio Fulci movies come out this year, The Beyond and The Black Cat, Piranha 2 The Spawning, I know it's a James Cameron film, but it's really an Avadao Asenitis film house by the cemetery coming in you've got a lot of italian exploitation when it comes to horror films what was working in the 1981 era of horror films
3: to go literally by the list of of what came out that year i was 11 years old so it's not like i remember vividly uh, what was going on but and i saw a lot of these a lot of these movies especially of the r rated would come later for me on hbo one of the earliest was actually friday the 13th part 2 that was the first Friday the 13th movie I saw. I didn't see part one until much later on, actually. I bet you were totally uh, lost in the story, huh? Yes. But, oh, gosh. I, I had to have read a Cliff Notes book on uh, to catch back up. And then uh, there was a television movie called Dark Knight of the Scarecrow. Do you guys remember that one?
2: I didn't yeah, see that, that, was... that at the time. I saw that years later on VHS, rented it from the library of all places. But, yeah, that, that was a creepy movie.
3: Well, I can tell you uh that was one of those movies that because it was regular television and it was a bit shocking for that time, keep in mind if any of you see this now, <laughs> you're going to laugh, but at that time it was pretty shocking and I can tell you the next day at school, that was a huge, huge topic of conversation. The last one in horror that sticks out to me, I mean, there's actually much bigger and I know we'll be talking about it so I'll save those. That's American Werewolf in London and Wolfen and Howling. But I want to talk about a little film, Dead and Buried. Are you guys familiar with this one, written by Dan O'Bannon?
2: Saw it years
3: later on video. Yeah, I saw it, but it was a long time ago. I,
0: I really don't remember much about it.
3: Okay, well, it had a huge impact on me uh, when I saw it because it was really shocking again for a young person like myself. And there's even a scene where a needle goes into somebody's eye. This patient, he's all bandaged up and only has one eye exposed and the syringe right into there like a grape. And later on, I was reading Lovecraft's... Uh, a friend of mine actually gave me this book of a collection of Lovecraft stories and one of them was Shatter Over Innsmouth. And as I read it, I went... This is Dead and Buried, just done differently. In Shadow Over Innsmouth, it's about fish people. In Dead and Buried, it's about dead people that are coming back to life, and you slowly begin to discover this whole town is like that. In Shadow Over Innsmouth, they were all fish people. Uh, so that was really interesting to me as a kid. So there was a lot of great horror, and for me specifically, horror wasn't my thing as much. It was thrillers, and this was a great year for thrillers. You had films like Eye of the Needle. Which, uh, was really good. Eyewitness, uh, with William Hurt and Sigourney Weaver. Sharky's Machine, which, while it's a Burt Reynolds movie, it's not of the Burt Reynolds variety. There's another film from, you know, 1981, same year, uh, Cannonball Run, which you would think of as a Burt Reynolds movie. But Sharky's Machine is dark, it's gritty, it's a bit sleazy, you know, a girl gets her face blown off by a shotgun. So it was a great year for thrillers.
0: Uh, the horror movies of 81, many of them I did not see until years later, but, um, The Howling, uh, Friday the 13th part two. Hallow- uh, the Halloween bur- two, the burning. Came out this Burning. Yep, The Burning. Halloween, Halloween
2: two. Two, two don'ts. We have Don't Go Near the Park and Don't Go Into the Woods both coming out this year.
0: Wolfen. Werewolf craze that we got there for a little while in the early 80s. Oh, The Hand. The, uh, I remember, um, God, I was pretty young and uh, I was at one of my cousin's house and like all the older kids were all watching The Hand and I wasn't allowed to and I was all mad. But because uh, it was on cable at some time in the mid 80s. I remember uh, that being really a well done creepy movie considering it's it's about something so just silly, you know.
2: Michael Caine once said, at the time, it was the most ridiculous film he'd ever taken part in. got to remember this is pre-Jaws 4 though.
0: That is true. I saw the Friday the Thirteenth. Like I saw one first, and then I saw two, and then I ended up. God, the rest of them I saw out of all kinds of order. I didn't see them in uh, in a particular order. I've always I was I was cool enough, I guess, that I saw the the first one like uh, first because I know a lot of people saw three first and then went back and saw one and were very confused as to where Jason Voorhees was. But um, yeah, there were uh, there were a lot of really good horror movies in uh, in 81. Some, some of the other ones that
2: we failed to mention were like Charles Band's The Alchemist came out in 81. Of course, you got the werewolf craze, which I want to talk about separately. You have, like I said, The Beyond, The Black Cat, Blood Beach, which is a fantastically fun movie that's still not out on DVD nowadays. The, oh, the John
0: Saxon one? Yeah. Oh, I yeah. love that movie.
2: Where else are you gonna see a rapist get his, get his penis bitten off by, by a vagina monster under this, under the sand?
0: Yeah, they're essentially, uh, like, uh, graboids that are living under the sand and are just slurping up anyone who's silly enough to go out there and go swimming. It's kind of, it's kind of Jaws, like, under the beach.
2: And it has one of the best taglines. Now, you gotta remember, Jaws 2 had come out just prior to this. And the tagline for Jaws 2 was, just when you thought it was safe to go back in the water. The tagline for Blood Beach was, just when you thought it was safe to go back in the water, you can't get to it. (laughs) It's a fantastic exploitation line.
0: And it's got that really awesome poster with the girl, you know, with her arms up in the air being, like, sucked down into the beach. Well, and
2: this year also gave us Cannibal Ferox, which is, you know, a vile, despicable film. We also had Dawn of the Mummy coming over from England. As I said, the two don't movies we had, we had Evil Dead, which... okay evil dead's a technicality here evil dead did not get a wide release it actually came out in 81 in select low budget drive-ins it wasn't actually released nationwide till 1984 so most of us did not see evil dead in 1981 but then you've got evil speak a film i've never really been partial to it's all right it's not terrible it's just not very good i think Friday the 13th Part 2, Funeral Home, Full Moon High. You have Toby Hooper in the Fun House. Halloween 2 is one that none of us have brought up. I actually like Halloween 2. I think it's actually a pretty good follow-up to the original, in all
0: honesty. I'm with you on that. I like Halloween 2. I like how it starts, like, right at the end of Halloween 1.
3: What's interesting, and you you left a very interesting title off this list, and this type of movie doesn't usually come out till like later as the genre craze begins uh, or after it's begun, I should say. And that's Student Bodies came out oh, in 1981. Student Bodies is a fantastically funny. And it's weird because uh, maybe people don't know this, but like at the the death knoll of any genre is when the comedies hit. Okay, you know, when the Western was dead, when, you know, the villain, Blazing Saddles, and there was a lot of them. Evil Roy Slade, and, you know, it, that was the death knoll of Westerns. Uh The Universal Monster movies, the death knoll was, of course, like the Abbott and Costello movies. There were a lot of comedies, actually, around that period. The comedies always seem to hit when the genre's dead. It, and this is one of the few times where it's right dead smack, like, well, I, don't, I almost said the middle. I would almost say more towards the beginning, wouldn't you?
2: Oh, yeah, because the, yeah. The, the slasher craze won't crash in upon itself till 1984. So this is closer to the beginning of the slasher movie craze that you have. I don't want to say it's an airplane-style comedy because it, it, it does do some airplane style, you know, the literal humor. But mm-hmm. it doesn't in other cases. It, it, it's more of a satire. So it kind of keeps... Going back and forth between a satire and a straight-up goofball comedy, strangely enough.
3: Yeah, I, I would say it encompasses kind of a sillier approach, almost, almost say the way Monty Python might do something. It's a little goofier. There's a, a the the character of the Breather has this silly voice. You always just see a pair of galoshes, and like you see the girl running, you see the galoshes, and he's like, ah, ah, just my luck, I picked a jogger. You know, and Which is
2: Richard Belzer, by the way, as the Breather.
3: Yeah, it's it's hysterical. It's really funny. It loses steam around the, le- the the third the the third act, but it's forgivable because it's been a great ride, and you know you can only go so far. But it's just interesting that all those tropes and cliches were being made fun of. Pretty much at the height of this stuff, as you say, Halloween Two, Friday the Thirteenth Part Two, Funhouse. This stuff was only just beginning.
2: But you also have the other side of that, too. Student bodies, for the most part, work. You also had another satire-slash-parody come out the same year, Saturday the 14th. Shockingly unfunny comedy. Talk about there are the misses, too.
0: I like Saturday the 14th. (laughs) Of course you do! And Saturday the 14th strikes back. That was even worse! Look, I'm not saying that they're great or anything, it's just I I have a soft spot for it. I have a soft spot for Wacko, which comes out next year, and I'll be sure to talk about that uh the next time, you know, when we get to eighty two. They're the spoofs that I actually enjoy. I think they're funny. I mean, Student Bodies is the best, but um I do enjoy like Saturday the 14th and whatnot. I don't know, they're just dumb. There's some, I guess cause I have such a soft spot for slashers that, uh, they do a good job of just mocking them and they're funny, unlike the, uh, really horrible, uh, spoofs that we get out. Yeah, the Fre- Fre- Friedman Seltzer just piles of crap that we get stuck with.
3: Well, I think that maybe films like this were beginning to exist more, not so much because of the horror films, but because of Airplane. They said, oh, this can make money, and someone saw potential, and essentially just were looking for any film to make fun of.
0: You know, the hot ticket and fairly easy to crank out something mocking it, and Mm -hmm. that's how that happened. Well, and
2: speaking of slashers, you had other ones coming out this year, such as My Bloody Valentine, a film I've never liked. I didn't like the remake. I've never been a fan of the original, but fine. That one just never did anything for me. On the other hand, you have Joseph Zito's The Prowler, which I find to be... There's just something about it that makes the kills... Like, when you see somebody get a a machete through the head in a Friday the 13th movie, you kind of like, ah, it's a movie. and It doesn't look painful. Somehow... Like in The Prowler, when the the lady's in the shower and she gets the pitchfork through her stomach, it somehow seems more visceral, even though they're not showing as much. Does that make sense? The Prowler is a much more visceral movie to me, and I'm not quite sure why. And then we got to talk about the the wolf craze. Wolfen, as I pointed out in our Howling retrospective, is only technically a werewolf movie. So really you had the Howling and American Werewolf in London going head-to-head. And I like American Werewolf in London. Don't mistake me. But as I said in our Howling retrospective, I like the Howling better. I think it's got a better script. It's It looks better. Joe Dante's use of lighting. And I just think it's an all-around, much more fun and interesting movie that I can rewatch more than I can for American Werewolf. And then you got Wolfen, which... For three quarters of it, it's a werewolf movie until you find out it's ghost werewolves conjured by naked Edward James almost dancing on a bridge. So it's not really a werewolf movie.
0: I saw American Werewolf in London was, I think, the first werewolf movie I ever saw, and it just traumatized me (laughs) because it was terrifying. I actually saw it because John Landis had directed um, Michael Jackson's Thriller on the VHS there was this, uh, like, after the music video, there was a whole segment about the making of Thriller, and I saw John Landis, and he was talking about American Werewolf in London. Actually, it was Michael Jackson was talking about why he hired John Landis, because of American Werewolf in London. He was such a big fan. I was like, wow, I really got to see this. This is great. And then I got my sister to rent it for me, and it traumatized the living shit out of me.
2: And Jenny so, Agutter is one of the most beautiful creatures on the planet in that movie.
0: Oh, she was wonderful in that. She was just stunning. That actually made me go back and watch, like, um Logan's Run and stuff. But, yeah, it's it's just such a creepy, weird movie. It has it's, – it's very – slow in the beginning like you know when they're going through the moors and they they stop at the bar and it just and then like once it kind of gets going it just gets weirder and then there's the um the the best friend who got killed who keeps like showing up and uh, it's it's just a great movie the effects are still amazing it's a good looking film it's uh, it's got a great story and I've always been a big fan of it uh, I like the Howling a lot I think the, we talked about it, that enough in the the Howling retrospective and uh, Wolfen I haven't seen in so long I totally don't remember Ghost Wolf things but <laughs> uh, I want to check it out now. You probably purged
2: it from your memory because of the full frontal nudity of Edward James Olmos in that, which was really unnecessary.
3: Actually, this is one of the few times I will uh, probably agree with you, Josh. The the stars have aligned. Essentially, uh, I think The Howling is a better movie. When I saw An American Werewolf in London, I thought it was an uh, an excellent film. I wasn't that scared in it. In fact, oddly enough, it's the scenes with the zombie Nazi dream sequences. Scared me more than anything with the wolves. When I saw The Howling, I, I think The Howling is, and I know, I guess it's cinematic blasphemy, but uh, I think it's a better movie. I just think it's more interesting, uh, more fun, and quite frankly, I like The Werewolves better, too. I, I think the Rob Bottin transformations are amazing, and I think they're better than American Werewolf in London.
2: Do you want to weigh in on Wolfen at all? Whether, about whether it's an actual werewolf movie or not?
3: Well, do I think it's a werewolf movie? No. Uh, I, I think it's a film that loses its its central theme by the end it's it's one of those movies where they build all this different stuff up it's actually a great little thriller it's really more of a thriller than a horror film
2: what happened with wolfen the director turned in a four hour and 15 minute director's cut what we see is a little over two hours so i think any mess that's in the movie is the fact that half of it's not there
3: i wouldn't doubt that it's it's not a bad movie especially when you watch the first half it's actually a pretty neat little thriller yeah, it just gets kind of lost there in the last 10, 15 minutes. I love The Howling. I, it's one of those films that I find as I get older, it actually gets better. And I go back and watch American Werewolf in London, and I can see John Landis's love of comedy, not just because of the jokes, but if you look at the structure, even the way things are set up and delivered, set up, delivered, set up, delivered, it even feels more like a comedy, if that makes sense, uh, just the way it's structured.
2: It does, and yet The Howling is the movie that's funnier, strangely enough. It's,
3: it's, it's satirical. I think it has a more satirical undertone to it. I don't know if I would call it laugh out loud funny though.
2: I don't know, Slim Pickens as a werewolf sheriff. That's pretty funny. <laughs>
3: Yeah, it's it's just a good movie, that's all. I just think it's a it's a solid film from top to bottom. And yeah, it, it looks it's weird. That one does look a little 70s though. That's the funny thing. That one does slightly have a 70s vibe to it.
2: Well, and you also had in 81 a lot of sci-fi and fantasy films coming out. You know, you've got another 2 years until the projection of of Return of the Jedi, Empire Strikes Back, as we discussed last week, was easily the winner of 1980, people are getting into the sci-fi films. And now Road Warrior hasn't quite made it over here yet, so we don't have the kind of Road Warrior influence on American cinema just yet. But at the same time, you have Escape from New York, which shares some similarities unintentionally with Road Warrior, but you've got things like Escape from New York, you've got interesting sci-fi movies such as, like I pointed out, Galaxy of Terror. This wasn't a great year for sci-fi, but you did have some great sci-fi movies. Arguably, one of the best sci-fi movies would be Time Bandits came out this year. And Time Bandits is a phenomenal film and a really bizarre one when you break it down, too.
0: The first time I saw Time Bandits, I hated it. I thought it was absolutely atrocious. But I... Wasn't really old enough to understand a lot of uh, the the stylish of you know of it. It just I was kind of taking it at face value and I didn't understand any of the movie that was going on. So it's a movie that I've come to enjoy years and years later. I still think it's a very bizarre, weird movie. I'd have to see it again because um, it's been a very long time. I don't I didn't hate it after I saw it. You know when I got older. I understood it more and I was like, "Oh, okay, this all makes sense now." I just remember every par- the parents turning into meatloaf at the end. I was like Or no, they they touched the they touched the green meatloaf in the uh in the um
2: That was oven a, that was a at- piece of pure concentrated evil. Thank you.
0: Uh, it was meatloaf.
2: It was pure concentrated evil that got left behind.
0: Galaxy of Terror, I had completely mixed up in my head. Uh, I used to think it was, uh, Joni loves maggot. Cause I remembered vividly that Joni, cause, cause Aaron Moran was in that. But I had vividly remembered that she was the one that got raped by the maggot in the movie. Nope. And then... She, she, she gets I,
2: her head all exploded out, whereas it's Taffy O'Connell that gets raped to death by the James Cameron well, maggot.
0: Well, that's the thing. I remember, you know, well, years later, like, actually, God, in like the, the early 2000s, uh, I had a friend of mine who was like, the Joni gets raped by a maggot movie. And, he, and then I watched it and I'm like, oh. It wasn't her at all. Like, but I remember. You know, it's funny the way your memory works with that kind of stuff. Yeah, it was totally the other girl, and then Joni got uh, blowed up. And uh, oh, and and Escape from New York, just an amazing movie. I love Escape from New York. Just Kurt Russell is just the quintessential cool guy in that movie. He's amazing. The cast is great. The effects are still great. The story holds up. Everything about it is just it's awesome. It's one of um, one of Carpenter's best.
2: I agree with that, and it almost wasn't. You pointed out how Kurt Russell was perfect. AVCO Embassy didn't want him. They wanted Charles Bronson for Snake Bliskin.
0: Oh, well, I like Bronson, but Bronson's too, Bronson would be too old for the role, even back
3: then. Well, I already mentioned Escape from New York at, it- It's. I I think it's just about as perfect as uh, that type of movie can get. Um, So I don't think I can add a lot more to what Cecil said. Uh, Just it's the movie that made me a John Carpenter fan. I'd seen Halloween, really liked it. Escape from New York just sort of solidified it. You had brought up about movies that were influenced uh, by what had already come, and two films I actually think that came they came out at this this year in '81 that were not influenced by what came before are both Clash of the Titans, which is 81, Time Bandits, which brought up... I should have included Time Bandits, actually, when we started this, because that was also a huge film for me. I saw it in the theater, and unlike Cecil, I loved it. Uh, I loved it from day one. It actually was what got me following David Rappaport's career. He was the lead bandit in Time Bandits, and he was in L.A. Law. He was on uh, the movie The Bride, which is not a good movie, but everything with him and Clancy Brown as Frankenstein is fantastic. Oh,
2: The Bride is a misguided movie. I don't care about Jennifer Beale and Sting. I love him mm-hmm. and Clancy Brown in that. They needed their own movie.
3: They did, and it's it's really worth watching for their Subplot. It really is. That's the, Time Bandits got me following him. It got me following Terry Gilliam and Clash of the Titans had been planned for years and years by, uh, Ray Harryhausen. It was, it was to be his last hurrah. He had put a lot of time into that film previously. And obviously these are both more fantasy than sci-fi, really. They were just two films that just happened to be together in that year, and they're wonderful movies. They both are. But a movie that is very sci-fi from that time of year and was uh, the beginning of Crichton's career would be Looker. Looker really is science fiction. This is its a speculative work that really does apply a bit even today. It predicted the idea of digitally scanning actors and replacing with these digital representations. I mean, if you remember, they did John Wayne, uh, selling beer. You remember those where they were bringing up dead stars and didn't Fred Astaire at some point in the '90s sell vacuums? Wasn't he dancing with a freaking vacuum or something? They did. I- uh, they took the singing with the
0: singing in the rain and they they made him dancing with a vacuum. A couple other
2: quick sci-fi ones I want to mention, such as the kind of, sort of, not really, almost, maybe Star Crash sequel, Escape from Galaxy 3, came out this year. You had Heavy Metal, which I'll actually put into the comedy category because it was intentionally trying to be much more comedy. And then you had some key fantasy films come out that year, such as Clash of the Titans, which would arguably be the largest one, Dragon Slayer. I think Dragon Slayer was probably the best fantasy film that came out that year. I couldn't believe how violent this thing was for a PG movie, for one and thing.
0: And it's Disney. This thing
2: was super... And a Disney PG was super violent. I'm like, oh my god, this would be maybe not even a hard PG-13 if re-rated. This would be an R-rated movie today. I saw this in the theater because it was marked as a kid's film.
0: Dragon babies are dismembering the princess. Like...
2: To me, the hardest part to watch in that is where she's trying to get out of the shackles and skinning her own wrists mm-hmm. to be able to to get her hand through the shackles. That still bugs me.
0: Yeah, because you're thinking, you're oh, this girl is gonna be all right. She's gonna get out of it, and then uh, you know, uh, Peter Mcneil a very unlikely hero, by the a way, a very unlikely hero, but goes in and you're like, okay, he's gonna rescue the oh oh god oh they're eating her like like that's that that's not supposed to happen. And then he like cuts their heads off and yeah, it's just so ridiculously violent. Yeah, just a great movie. The, the dragon effects still look awesome. The big fight at the end is just incredible. Such a well done, well placed or a well paced movie. Disney wants to kind of. Put that under, you know, sweep it under the rug. We we didn't put this really violent kids movie out, and and then if they did actually
2: a, a lot of the a lot of the Disney move, live action movies from this era, something wicked this way comes, Tron, Dragon Slayer black hole really disney just kind of wants to forget about because not to go too deep into it this was a very tumultuous time in disney's history there was a civil war going on for control of the company and the direction of the company and almost every single one of these live action movies i just mentioned were disasters at the box office so i don't think disney looks back at
0: this era very fondly in general but like they could you know get some of their uh, recoup some of their money I I don't know. I think that uh, there's enough fans for these that if they were to release them, it it would be a a good thing. But uh, especially something like Dragon Slayer. Clash of Titans was incredible. And uh, it's one of the movies where I was so incredibly annoyed that they remade it because the remake... Like, they completely missed the point. They went way overboard with, like, the CGI effects that looked like garbage. You know, especially compared to the old Ray Harryhausen just stop motion animation. They just were incredible.
2: Also, Harry Hamlin might not have been a great actor. Sam Worthington's
0: a terrible one. Yeah. Yeah. Like, Sam Worthington has been in movies where he's passable, but he's, it's, there's never been a movie where you're like, wow, he gave a great performance. Harry Hamlin's Perseus was really good, like, he played the character very well, and um, Sam Worthington's Perseus was just, he sneered and he was angry at things, and and they even, like, mocked the original movie, like, he found uh, Bebo in, like, a junk pile. And, uh, I, I know that was kind of supposed to be a little bit of a tongue-in-cheek to the, you know, nod to the first movie, but it came off as very like, uh, look at this piece of crap. Or was it, or was it, was it Bebo or Boobo? I think, I, I think Bubo. it was Boobo. It was Boobo, the owl. Yeah. Yeah. It just, um, it, it was just an incredible movie.
3: I, I love the, uh, the original Clash of the Titans. Ari brought up Clash of the Titans it's 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 really wonderful if you're a fan of Ray Harryhausen at all it's a must uh it's an epic film that it held up it held its own against more modern effects in that time period uh the movie's a little special to me because my brother took me to see it and my brother and I didn't spend any time together in the 80s so this was this was a a moment you know that we shared he took me to see two movies and they were both They've become important to me. Clash of the Titans was one, and Blade Runner was the other. So it's just a wonderful movie, and the cast is freaking amazing. Dragon Slayer is a really shockingly gritty, gory film. And I have to say, it's funny. I find it doesn't get a lot of respect today. People find it boring and dull. And I'm the exact opposite. I, I think as a kid, I was engrossed in it. As an adult, I'm still engrossed in it. It's, it's a film that you wouldn't see today. That's it. I mean, you know, I, I don't even think they would try to remake it. It's such a cynical movie. Everybody is very cynical. In the film and oddly enough, it has more in common. It has less in common with Clash of the Titans and really more in common with the other films of this era. Sharky's Machine, Southern Comfort, Nighthawks, Death Hunt, Fort Apache, the Bronx, which were these, they weren't just like violent movies. They were dark, gritty and very gory. All of them. They weren't just like somebody gets shot. They were throats being slit and <laughs> people being disemboweled. It, it fits more into those films which makes it even funnier that it's a disney pg film the casting is great you would never see peter mcnichol in your mind i think most people would see him more as the the curator from ghostbusters 2 he's a vehicle Yeah, he's a Vigor, you're like the buzzing of flies to him. And this is the guy that is the young hero of Dragon Slayer and Caitlin Clark, who sadly died of cancer and never really went on to a big career. And I looked up her biography once and was shocked to discover she was one of the hookers in Crocodile Dundee. There's nudity in Dragon Slayer, too. That's the other thing. Back in the day when a PG
2: movie could have copious amounts, I couldn't believe the amount of nudity in Looker. That's a PG movie.
3: And
0: Clash mm-hmm. of the Titans, by the way. Yeah. And Beastmaster.
2: Well, Beastmaster's next year.
0: I know, but I'm just still saying it's a PG movie.
2: Well, and then there was one other fantasy film this year that got all of the accolades laid on it that I've just never liked. I've never gotten into John Boorman's Excalibur. I've never understood why so many people love it. I mean, if you love it, fine. To me, the film is boring and super pretentious. Not just that, you had some just bizarre exploitation movies coming out this year, such as, I think 1981 is the only year you could have gotten away with Charlie Chan and the Curse of the Dragon Queen. That film is racist, while making fun of how racist it is, and a kind of a brilliant throwback to an old 1940s character of Charlie Chan with really modern sensibilities. You know, you've got movies like that. You've got Heavy Metal. Heavy Metal is straight up a bizarre movie. An adult-oriented, nudity and swearing and violence-filled film for adolescent teenage fantasies that is made as a comedy, and it's called Heavy Metal with a classic rock soundtrack. That's just bizarre. You've also got, this year you had Coming Atcha, violent, cynical 3D western. You've got The Weird british sex comedy spaced out you got scanners no possible way you can try and say scanners is not a weird movie and then you arguably got the weirdest movie about 1981 porno holocaust from joe damato a hardcore porn about a zombie that face rapes women and his semen is radioactive
3: because italy ones you listed i didn't see uh did see of course heavy metal and ivan reitman was getting, it seemed like he was building an empire at that time period because Stripes came out that year as well. I love Stripes. I I don't know what they were exactly trying to achieve with Heavy Metal because you could say, of course, they're trying to expand the brand of of the magazine, yet they were changing the stories, I think, too much from the original comics. So, yeah, other than that film, which I I still love, uh, the score by Elmer Bernstein was magnificent to heavy metal uh, that's the thing i almost want to comment more on I, I love that score and for score hunters it wasn't available for decades i actually have the uh, the score i have could... that
2: score on lp i found it at a goodwill it was a radio station
3: copy it's a radio station promo, yes. They used it so they could cut uh, trailers, and I have that same LP. It was very rare, very expensive until finally FSM was able, I think it was FSM got the rights to uh, release it, and it was an incredible release, and I was so happy. And you could always get the rock songs, of course. They were out on a double double LP, but uh, the score was really hard, uh, really rare to find the one track the tarnius theme was actually from Saturn 3 it was an unused piece of music
0: um heavy metal was uh, was great um it's they spoofed it on south park a few years ago and it was really funny where uh kenny was driving this uh Am with a girl with big tits and there's uh they did it in the art style of heavy metal I, I so seem, it was very I funny i remember they
2: even played radar rider underneath it the same way that they did in the movie
0: I'm pretty sure they did, yeah. Uh, I always thought it was funny. The um, there was the one story where uh, John Candy was the voice, and John Candy has such a distinct voice. But he was playing like, if I remember correctly, he was playing like a really thin guy, and so it was just funny because I'm looking, and he's he ends up you know being the hero, and uh, it's like. Yeah, yeah, it's like, oh, that, but that's totally John but Candy. But you gotta remember,
2: John Candy wasn't famous yet, so his voice wasn't as easily recognizable. We gotta remember, Harold Ramis is also one of the main voices in this movie, too. So you hear Egon oh, constantly geez. as a cocaine-snorting alien.
0: Or, sorry, Nyborg-snorting
2: <laughs> have... alien, sorry.
0: Uh, I gotta go see that again. I haven't seen that in, uh, in quite a long time. But, uh, I've said that a lot tonight, Jesus. Yeah, I like uh I like heavy metal a lot. And um, I don't uh I surprisingly haven't seen a lot of the other ones that you mentioned.
2: What about the comedies? This was also a good year for comedies. You had Stripes, which I think is a is, is a great film in all honesty. Falls apart some near the end of the third act. Kinda of takes itself a little too seriously, but it still does work. You also had Arthur coming out, a movie I don't really like, but I understand why people do. Richard Pryor with Bustin' Loose. Which I think is funnier than it probably should be. You got Cannonball Run, which we're gonna do a whole Cannonball Run retrospective at some point. I bet people don't realize that there are five movies in that franchise, so we're gonna do a whole retrospective on that at some point. You've got other comedies such as Nice Dreams from Cheech and Chong came out this year. You've got Heartbeats, the Andy Kaufman movie, isn't very good, but still it came out this year. You've got some pretty interesting films. I mean Polyester.
0: That was a great year. Like. Uh... Stripes is just an all-time favorite of mine. I just adore it. I think it's hilarious, and it's still funny. I I wouldn't say that it, it like loses anything with the last act. It definitely goes in a different direction, a very unexpected direction, but it's still funny. Like, you know, when he goes and when, when they find all the, the captured prisoners and he goes up and knocks on the door, it's idiot, you know, and like little dumb things like that are hilarious. And, uh, it, it just, um, it kind of goes in a, a very actiony direction, but they're driving around in an armored RV. So, It's silly, but it's hilarious. And, uh, you know, when they drive through the, um, the border and there's the Russian guards there. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Joe Flaherty was was one of the Russian guards. Yeah, it was just really funny. I, I love Stripes. And uh yeah, Polyester is just a weird movie, but it's funny. But it is weird. It's not for everybody. Neighbors, yeah. The the John Belushi yeah, Dan one. Dan
2: Aykroyd, John Belushi.
0: Dan Aykroyd, very very funny, bizarre movie. N- nice Dreams is probably my favorite Cheech and Chong movie because that's the one where Pee Wee Herman's a coke fiend.
2: And, and, and uh Keats
0: is slowly Keith. turning into a giant Stacey lizard. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Mr. Lizard Man, would you like a hamburger? That's so funny. I love that movie. Yeah, there's a lot of really good comedies in 81.
3: Yeah, it was a great year. Porky's, History of the World Part 1. but great year for comedy. Obviously, very reverent comedies. That was just, you know, everybody wasn't offended by everything back then. So, you had uh, quite a variety. I mean, Porky's is such a weird movie if you look at it today. It, it really is. It, it deals with a lot of issues, and yet it's got, like, things about racism, yet there are endless jokes, sodomy jokes, <laughs> all kinds of weirdness. our heroes are so.
2: straight-up sexual harassment poster boys
3: oh completely completely it's it's definitely in that sort of weird vein where uh, bob clark wrote it uh, that is the the christmas story bob clark wrote this and uh, he said this was based on his school years growing up so that that says a lot and history of the world part 1 i think is just one of the most quotable movies out there it's just hysterical there's just too many jokes to even – in fact, my brain just got flooded trying to remember some of Our the uh, the wonderful minds. Yeah, or uh, the uh, – as they're passing through Rome, you hear a guy screaming, Oh, plumbing! Plumbing! Get indoor plumbing! Pipe the shit right out of your house! <laughs> and just these very weird, offhanded – I love this. uh In the French Revolution, they're playing chess with real people – and it's like they call out to make the Everybody pieces jumps move, the and so they're like,
2: I actually still use a gag from that in my everyday conversation. Whenever somebody is being a little crazy, I go, "You're nuts!" NVTS nuts. So I still quote that, Fred.
3: Oh, there's seriously. I'm just I can't remember them all. The joke with Moses coming down with the three tablets instead of two. Behold, the Lord Jehovah has given unto you these fifteen. <laughs> One breaks Ten. Ten, ten commandments ten for commandments. all to obey. <laughs> you know, the Jews were Jews in space. And uh, that same song was used later for the Robin Hood, Men and Tights thing. So uh it's it's endless, endless quotable lines. Really funny movie.
2: Well, this year was no shortage in exploitation either. Now, some people are going to, some of the movies I'm going to put in this exploitation category, some people are going to go, what? But yeah, these are exploitation movies. You had like Ms. 45. To me, that's an exploitation movie. Of course, you had Clones of Bruce Lee, which is a fantastic exploitation movie. Body Heat and Blowout, those are exploitation films. Nighthawks, even Nighthawks with Stallone, that's an exploitation movie. These are exploitation films. This was a year for them as well. Night Riders, Just Before Dawn, Jaws of Satan, those are all exploitation films. Montenegro, The Nesting, people categorize them as not because generally these are sought seen as something bigger than that but arguably the biggest one which i believe it was fred that brought up earlier where is of the lost ark it's an exploitation movie it really is
0: yeah i'd say uh you know miss 45 is definitely an exploitation film nighthawks is there's a lot of uh exploitation films back in like this you know these are the the holdovers from the 70s uh you know exploitations was still going strong and So we did have a lot of good exploitation films well into the 80s.
2: And then you had some other ones that are a little harder to quantify, such as Sidney Lumet's Great Prince of the City and another Treat Williams movie of The Pursuit of D.B. Cooper. What I consider one of the most overblown movies of all time, On Golden Pond came out this year, although I much prefer the Ginger Lynn movie On Golden Blonde. That's a real movie, by the way, too. Oh, my God, that cinematic sleeping pill that won all the Oscars. Chariots of Fire came out this year. While I don't personally like Das Boot, it's a, fa- it, it's a fantastically well-made movie. And then you've got something like American Pop. I like Ralph Bakshi, but wow, did that movie not work at all for me. So you, you have the other films that don't quite fit into a lot of these categories. I mean, road games. Would you call that an exploitation film? or a slasher movie, or kind of both? I mean, you know, where does Quest for Fire really fit?
3: Well, it kind of comes back to the idea, like, when we, guys like us, we talk about the 80s a lot, and people say, well, you want all those type of films back again. And I always point out that it's not that I necessarily want those particular movies back again. It's the approach that I miss. That's what I miss. In the case of, like, say, road games, which, uh, you clearly know is one of my favorite movies. It was the first episode of my show Movie Apocalypse when I did it. I'd say that, to be fair, this one could classify as an exploitation film. Um, first of all, it's pretty much a rip-off of Rear Window. That's what they set out to make, was a rip-off. There's not a lot from Rear Window in it, but the structure is still basically the same. And, uh, yeah, there's a sleazy underpinning. Even though it's PG and there's not much in the film very shocking, there's this kind of a sleazy underpinning and some of the dialogue always hints at something more graphic than anything you see. So I think that's a fair statement for that one. But yeah, a lot of these films were just stories. A good story is just that. You know, you could argue Ghostbusters. Is it sci-fi? Is it horror? Is it comedy? I think a good film is just that. It's just a good film. It's not genre-based. It doesn't have to be. It's just a story that you enjoy, and it has elements. And, you know, On Golden Pond is a drama. But Prince of the City is a drama. Yet the same audiences would not go to see these. I guess it's sort of in the same way, for lack of a better way of thinking, like Billy Joel, Huey Lewis, and Prince would all be pop. Not necessarily everybody would listen to all three of those artists so it it's i think it's just more that back then we were looking for good movies we didn't put a label as much on it as we did later you know once vcr vhs was becoming larger and larger and larger you go to your local blockbuster and you have your action section comedy section sci-fi section and i always felt like that's sort of what brought this whole genre thinking out more than anything
0: uh I actually really like on Golden Pond. Uh I was allowed to watch it when I was too young and I bet and, you um, like on Golden Blonde uh, better. You know what? I I've, I've seen some Ginger Lynn stuff but I've never seen on Golden Blonde. You got Peter Fonda, who's just a filthy old man who's got Alzheimer's. His wife is just a doddering fool. His his daughter uh, has all kinds of esteem issues because she's been berated her whole life. It's like this completely dysfunctional family. And they've kind of built a somewhat heartwarming drama around this. And I don't know. I've always liked it. I think that it works. Uh, I don't think that it's a bad movie at all. And, um, I never saw Chariots of Fire. I really had no interest in it. Rogue games, I saw because of you, Fred, actually. First episode was, yeah. So that kind of, uh, maybe be like, Hey, I got to check this out. Cause, uh, I didn't, I mean, it was an exploitation movie, What it was an exploitation movie with, uh, um, Jamie Lee Curtis and Stacey Keach. Uh, was Stacey it Stacy Cheach? Stacey, Stacey
3: Keach, yeah. my man.
0: So it was just like, it was bizarre, cause it's like, okay, that doesn't have Australians in it, but they were trying to push, you know, her star over there, and, uh, it was, uh, it was cool. It was a very unique, uh, reminded me a little bit of Duel. Not exactly like Duel, but I don't know, it just had a, it had a duel feeling to it.
2: We had the Golden Raspberry Awards, as, you know, we started last, last week. Golden Raspberry Awards was, was swept by a film we haven't talked about it all. Because it's a film I don't think is a bad movie, but it has a lot of flaws. Unfortunately, none of the things that won Raspberries before, and that's Mommy Dearest. Mommy Dearest won The Golden Raspberry for Worst Picture, tied for Worst Actress with Bo Derek in Tarzan the Ape Man, Worst Supporting Actor for Steve Forrest in Mommy Dearest, and Worst Supporting Actress, Dinah Scarwood for Mommy Dearest. Mommy Dearest swept the Raspberries, with the exception of losing to Michael Cimino for Best Worst Director and Worst Actor, Kilton Spilsbury for Legend of the Lone Ranger, Mommy Dearest would have had every single one of the major categories.
0: Well, as I said last week, it's once again
3: proving that the Raspberries have no
0: idea what they're talking about.
3: I mentioned this to you previously, but I never cared about them. I don't think they're interesting, compelling, or all that intelligent.
2: I I don't disagree with you. I just think we should note it because it's kind of fun to see what's considered the worst versus what actually is.
3: They were probably trying to create a name for themselves and Mummy Dearest uh you know I remember that period and when that movie came out, people loved that movie. It was the talk of of everyone I I knew, adult as well as young people because around the school the, the line no wire hangers was a, a constant joke it was a film that was very much of that period and uh it's weird to me now. Uh you were the one that told me that it got a raspberry and to me that's kind of mind blowing. It was it was a big deal. It would be like if you told me, you know, the big chill was a, a raspberry winner of its time. I'm not saying it was a like this classic great movie. I'm just saying I remember that period and that movie was on the the tongues of everyone. It it was just one of those films.
2: I can't remember if it was Leonard Maltin, one of the major critics said of Mommy Dearest, if Myra Breckenridge did not exist, this would be arguably the worst film in the history of cinema. But <laughs> but they said Myra Breckenridge was actually worse, so that's why it gets spared that title. I can't remember one of the major critics said that, and I was like, damn, you hated this movie a lot more than I did. Wow. But then you got the top grossing films of the year. Probably no surprise, Raiders of a Lost Ark is number one. On Golden Pond, number two. Superman 2 came in number 3. Arthur, number 4. This one surprises me because it's such a great movie. I forgot it was, I forgot Stripes was such a box office hit to come in at number 5. Cannonball Run at number 6. Chariots of Boredom at number 7. James Bond, always a box office hit for your eyes only at number 8. A movie, Yay. A movie I'm unfamiliar with, The Four Seasons, uh, number 9. And again, I forgot this movie was a hit. Time Bandits at number 10. I actually forgot Time Bandits wow. was actually financially successful.
0: I think it's a, it's a good range. I mean, I'm not surprised that some of the movies are on there that uh, they are. I mean, Stripes, uh, at the time, god, uh, I mean, that movie, genuinely funny. I'm surprised and happy that, uh, it hasn't been remade yet, although I'm sure it'll happen at some point.
3: I'd say it's a fair representation. It's, it's interesting to note though that those films are all pretty much bright and colorful films. They're upbeat and or action oriented, funny. And I think that's very reflective of the time. Uh, you know, a lot of the other films we've talked about are all very dark movies, very gritty films, and a lot of them anywhere near that list. So, and maybe that's why even Mommy Dearest wasn't well-received, because that film is really hard to watch. It's just two hours of her screaming at children. (laughs) That's not a pleasant (laughs) that's not a pleasant movie going experience so uh, i'd say yeah it's a it's a pretty fair representation i'll tell you what it was a great year to grow up i can tell you that it was it was a great year to go see movies like cannibal run in the theater and raiders and it just was like every week something fun was coming out to go see yeah
2: just wait till we get to next next year next week 1982 i may actually have to break that up into two episodes cuz there are so many key movies to talk about 1981 was a great transition year we were finally starting to leave the 70s behind and we're starting to move into the reality that will be the 1980s and that will never be more evident than it will in 1982 when we get to that one it's so obvious that the 80s have now taken over when we get to 82 fred you were alive at this time where can people find you
3: well, if I'm still alive, that would be uh, the Facebook movie apocalypse page.
2: And Cecil, you were not a zygote yet when all the, when all the films that we're talking about were around. But where could people find you to make fun of the fact that you weren't alive yet?
0: Um, you can make fun of my not alivedness at um, <laughs> escapistmagazine.com as well as goodbadflicks.com, and I'm also on Facebook. You can look up good Bad flicks, but there's a whole weird thing with finding things on facebook and much easier to find me as good bad flicks on twitter you
2: can find me at 1201beyond.com you can contact the show at 1201beyond at gmail.com guys keep one foot in the gutter one fist in the gold have a good night